but I can't tell you about it yet because it may fall through and then I'll feel really bad. So whatever. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. On the inside, you're going to get some notes that reflect on what we talk about today, as well as some questions to reflect on what we talk about today. In the back, you're going to get the verses we're going through. On the bottom, you get a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Version. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And then once you have that, you can click on More and then Events in Version. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. Boy, we are a noisy room today. It's going to be great. <laughs> my, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? That's what my phone sounds like when I lose it. I'm all, oh, it's the greatest thing in the world because I lose my phone all the time. Anyway, it says Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust in you. And we're not looking to other people for our identity that we live and walk knowing the goodness of who you are because you have rescued and saved us and that we would walk in the midst of that knowing that by your grace, by your salvation, by your righteousness given to us, we can actually be something. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through the New Testament book of Galatians. This is week 24. After this week, we only have two weeks left. You're right there. Now, uh, originally, I was only going to do three weeks in chapter 6, but I did kind of put this one back in because really Galatians 6, 1 through 10, it goes through these three different ideas that all come together into how we live and love with one another. And so today we're going to talk about how when we are found in Christ, we are everything and nothing at the same time. And that might sound confusing to you, but that's okay if I can pique your interest. Maybe I can keep your interest this whole time as we go through this. Uh, as I've said, Galatians is probably one of the best ways in the entire Bible to see what grace really is, what the gospel truly is. Paul keeps coming back and expounding upon what that means. And for us, that's good for us. That repetition, that remembering of what he says is good for us. There's a beauty in understanding who we are before God himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us that God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. We exchange our sin for his righteousness, our death for his life. We get Christ's righteousness laid upon us. And this correlates into what Paul is going to talk about today, that our righteousness in our lives only comes from Christ. And that standing is something we can take pride in. And it's important for us to understand this because we are meant to have a humility before God. We are meant to be humble before one another. And if we are humble before God, understanding who we are in Him, that'll keep us from looking for validation for other pe- from other people to say who we are. But that also helps us then to understand is that we are nothing and everything at the same time. And Christianity has done a lot of good in the world, but usually the evil that people have done in the name of Christianity gets a lot more press. But again, great things have been done. Christianity gets a bad rap in in the media today from a lot of different authors, but the truth is 85% of charitable giving done in the entire world is done by people who call themselves 
Christians. We are compassionate, which is very, very good, but we tend to fall in line with culture and we consume too much, which is then bad. It is why Christianity many times is seen as being hypocritical. Now, unfortunately, when we see people in Christianity portrayed in the news or in movies or in TV shows today, they don't really show the love and the grace that Christians are supposed to live in. What people today will typically talk about is crusades and inquisitions. They will see placards at sports games that say, God hates queers and pill poppers. They'll see Christians showing up to a funeral of somebody they disagree with their lifestyle with signs that say they're burning in hell. That gets all of the press. And all those things come about when people claim to worship God but don't understand that the worship of God is not based upon our own merit. It is based upon what He has done. The Ku Klux Klan even called themselves a Christian organization. They had nonprofit status for a bit, and they would preach messages about lifting up the cross. How did they do that? By burning it in people's lawns of those that they disagreed with. They called it the lighting of the cross. And when you see images like that, it should make you sick, but it should also make you sad because far from Jesus being lifted up, Jesus is being defamed. If you have a Bible, open to Galatians chapter 6. That's on page 633 if you're using one of the Bibles at Element. It is disconcerting to people around the world this idea of hypocrisy. When you see preachers who are supposed to proclaim the Word of God and yet they're stealing money or sleeping around, or when Christians go to war to win converts, or when a racist wears a cross on the robe, hypocrisy destroys the gospel more than any other sin. It's really the one sin that Jesus railed upon more than anything else. Our modern understanding of the word hypocrisy actually comes from Jesus and how he talked about it. Now, here's the hard part for most people. Those same images we look out and we hate, we have to be careful because many times they reflect our own hearts because we are all hypocrites. And the thing is, everybody in the world is a hypocrite. There are some bands today that, that I really do like, and yet they will preach about these you know, stinking capitalist pigs, uh, and yet they will charge you at least 100 bucks to get the nosebleed section to go to see them, and they'll charge you 35, 40 bucks for a t-shirt when it probably costs them two to three bucks to make. It's like, yeah, who's the stinking capitalist pig now, really? You've got actors who make millions of dollars for every movie, and then they will tell everybody else, oh, watch your lifestyle. I'll live in my mansion, you live like this. Politicians do the same thing. They will pass laws, and then they will exempt themselves from those exact same laws laws, but expect you to follow all of those laws. And it's all hypocrisy. That's all that it is. And no one offers any solutions except the gospel, except the grace of Jesus. In Christ, our identity can change from being outraged at all of these things to being humble because we realize how God has loved and saved us. It all changes because of the gospel. I'm going to read you the verses that we talked about last week and then hone in on verses 3 and 4. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And if we live that way, we're not going to bear one another's burdens. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So today, what I want to hone in on something 
something that our culture loves to talk about, and that is self-image and self-esteem. Because I believe when we understand the gospel correctly, it'll change us and move us out of our hypocrisy because of how we see ourselves. How do we come out of the rhetoric? How do we come out of all this noise of this self-righteous whole? We understand the paradox of the gospel because Christianity brings us into a new way of looking at ourselves and understanding of ourselves that is different than anything else in the world. Now, sometimes when I talk about things like this, people have said that I depress them because I talk about how we're just terrible people. My goal in telling you how terrible we are is never to make you feel bad about yourself. It's to show us that if we base our worth on anything other than what God has said about us, we're going to be depressed. We're going to lash out at others. We will live in a place of hypocrisy. But when we understand what the gospel proclaims over us, that's when we get to be free. That's when we get to be free. Here's the paradox of Christianity. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. That does not mean you're taking pride in yourself or your accomplishments. It means that we are nothing in context to what Paul has been saying in the entire book. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I went to Iceland. And they have these pools that are there that are heated by thermal springs. Here's a picture. Okay, so this is like one of these pools that's looking out over onto the ocean. Yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. You should all go. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, it's nice and warm and it's great, but then what they want you to do is this weird body cleanse. So you get out of this pool and then you jump in this tiny little pool that's like 30 degrees. And then you get out of that little pool and you run into this sauna that's really hot. Then you get out of that sauna and you go into this freezing cold rain shower room. And you get out of that and you go into this really hot steam room. And then you go back out and jump back in this pool again. And it's supposed to do this body cleanse. And, and it's weird. It's like hot, cold, hot, cold. And that's almost kind of what Paul is doing. Paul's going, you're nothing, you're everything, uh, you're nothing, but take pride in what Christ has done. How do you do that without getting whiplash, or in my case, <laughs> hypothermia, right? When you jump from one pole to the other. Well, you got to start here, and it's always easier for me to talk about this because I feel like I'm nothing. i got a horrible self-esteem. But anyway, first place, we are nothing. That's where we start. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I'm going to quote to you this guy named Donald Guthrie when he writes about this. This is out of his commentary. He says this, English translations of necessity obscure the emphatic juxtaposition of these two words, something and nothing. You're like, what does that mean? He goes on and says, the contrast could not be more evidently expressed. There are no grays between. No believer has a right to regard himself as any more than nothing. Now, when Paul says that, that is not trying to destroy who we are. We are made in the image of God. But it meant to help us to understand that in and of ourselves running towards our own things and not where God's calling us to, we are always going to end up falling short. This is not false modesty. You look at how Paul talks about himself in tons of different places. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So really, the Apostle Paul says this about himself. He's the least and worst of all of the apostles. This is the guy who writes most of the books in the New Testament. He leads a guy named Luke to come to know who Christ is. And Luke writes the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the most content of any writer of the New Testament. So Paul's responsible for most of it. This would be like Michael Jordan back when the Bulls were amazing going, oh, I'm the worst player on the Bulls. That's kind of what that'd be like. Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach the, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's not just the least of all the apostles. He's the least of all God's people. 
Here's my favorite one, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, this saying is trustworthy, meaning you can trust what I'm about to tell you, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, here's the kicker, of whom I am the foremost. This word means protos, it means first. It means I am the worst of sinners. So he's not just the worst of the apostles, the least of the apostles, the worst of all the people of God, but he says, I am the worst of all sinners. One commentator says this, this is either unreal at best or pathological at worst. So is it? Is it pathological? Well, if you've been around Element for a while, I've talked about this before. Maybe not as in-depth as this, but we've talked about it before. And it's really important that you see that I'm not saying something I'm not trying to say. I'm not saying when we acknowledge our nothingness, we walk around with a negative self-esteem all the time. I don't mean we hang our heads in disgust about ourselves. And if that is what you've thought I've ever said when I talk about how terrible we are, please understand that is not what I'm saying and hear where we're going. Because what Paul says is so much more meaningful than our self-centered view. So you got to look at the understanding of this. What are the possibility of Paul's words here? Is this like a pious exaggeration? Oh, I'm so bad. Because Christians will sometimes do this. It's like this false modesty. It, one person calls it spiritual word inflation. And I like that because it means that sometimes you walk around and everything is such a blessing or I'm such a sinner or there's such a revival of God going on in this town, this church, this place or, or whatever. Spiritual word inflation. It's all oohs and ahs. I mean, you know what inflation is like. You live in America the last couple of years, right? The government starts printing money and all of a sudden your money's worth less. And pretty soon it's like, how, how do we have it be here? What we're trying to say when a country inflates your money starts to become less valuable. After World War I, the German mark went down so low that it took literally a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread. You can read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's biography and he talks about that. But that's spiritual word inflation because eventually you get to a place where there's only so many awesomes and incredible and you're gonna need a whole wheelbarrow full of that to even make what you're trying to say make sense. Oh, I'm the worst. Oh, you're the greatest. This is the best church. God is coming down in the greatest power. Eventually, it's like you're using too many adjectives. You just tell me what the truth actually is here. Now, this is not what Paul is doing. Paul makes a lot of statements like this. Certain commentators, as I said, do think he is way over the top. But if you know me, I think Paul is brilliant. And if you look at these statements in context, everything has a deeper theological meaning, meaning it's thought out. Paul knows what he's saying by using the words he is using. So he's trying to move us somewhere. It's not spiritual word inflation. But on the other side of that, is this like a pathological low self-esteem that Paul feels just like a horrible person all the time? A few decades ago, people would look at Christianity and some people would say, oh, it's a wretch religion. And this comes out of Isaac Watts. He had this him that said, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Meaning, would Jesus die for someone so terrible as me? Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Exactly, a wretch like me. Oh, it's a wretch religion. You're supposed to just feel terrible. Is that what Paul is talking about here? Uh, I, I saw this Facebook post that a friend of mine, his, his daughter, posted this up that just blasted the church. That kind of goes along with this. She said this, this is the problem with those people in the church. They say we are all sinners and everybody is wicked. It has been psychologically damaging to my self-esteem to feel this way and I am through. Okay? They felt destroyed in their confidence. They can't interact with the world with boldness and courage. Now, if you knew this person, you'd also know that they actually never came to church. They just stood on the outside, looked in, judging everybody, but that's not here to there. But she sounds a lot like people who are movie stars or music stars today. I'm great. 
everyone else is the problem. And they have to say that enough because inside they probably don't feel all that great. She blamed the church and the Bible for this. Again, I know someone who when I tell you how terrible we are all the time, they say, it makes me want to leave element when you talk about this. So is that what Paul is saying? You are just a wretch. You're just a worm. Is that what I'm saying? Is it like some really sad pathological thing? Well, you got to look at Paul again as a case study to see what's being said. Because if I tell you how bad we are just to make you feel guilty, well, there's a problem with that. Well, with me. The problem's with me. It'd be psychologically unhealthy. Tim Keller says you got to look at Paul. If he had this terrible self-image, he goes, shouldn't Paul have been very ineffective in his career? Shouldn't he have been lacking in confidence and lacking in boldness? And then he goes on to point out that it's just the opposite. Paul is one of the most bold and courageous leaders in the history of the world, not just the history of the church. Shouldn't that have stopped if he had this low self-esteem? No. Say, so look, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul even talks about some of this in his life. He says, five times I received 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, not like your friends get stoned, this is where they throw rocks at you until they try and kill you, okay? Three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, dangers from my own countrymen. Ooh, yeah, Paul's self-image really kept him from going out and interacting with the world. Well, no. But on the other hand, there are cynical people that look at this and say, well, that's what someone with no self-esteem would do. They just go out, their life's worth nothing, they're fearless, they overdo it because they feel the need to prove themselves. But that is also not what the Apostle Paul is doing. Paul is not somebody with a death wish. He doesn't have a martyr complex. How do you know? You look at his life. Sometimes he goes into a place. He is a Roman citizen. He can't be beaten or jailed without a trial. And yet he is beaten and jailed and he says nothing at all. Other times he is beaten in jail and he's like, hey, I am a Roman citizen. And he's like, everybody freaks out. Oh my goodness, we're not allowed to do that to a Roman citizen. It's like, you're in big trouble. Everybody freaks out. Why does he sometimes do it and sometimes not? And the answer is, and this is important, it shows his motivation. It depends on whether it helps the gospel go forward or not. That's why. Paul will go into an area and he will look and look at a movement of Christ in a town, a city, a region, and he will say what will best serve believers here. And that is not a martyr complex. So when he says, I am nothing, there is a purpose behind that. And even when I say this sometimes and explain it to people, sometimes people will say, well, maybe the idea that Paul was nothing, that he was a sinner, well, it didn't hurt his self-confidence, but it hurt mine. Meaning, hearing about our sin may not have destroyed Paul's confidence, but it destroyed yours. And I think if you talk to Paul about this and you said, hey, this is what it's doing to me, this might be a little offensive to you, but Paul would probably say, well, you're too self-focused because it's not about you. This whole, the gospel has never been about you. The gospel is about God and his glory and what he's doing in the midst, as a result of God's glory being portrayed in the gospel, we are a people who get to be saved because of it. See, that is Christianity. Looking at yourself and saying, I'm just a terrible person, well, that's, that's religion. And Paul would know where you're coming from because Paul did try religion. And it nearly killed him until Jesus got a hold of him. When Paul was in his religious phase, he's persecuting the church. His religion kept him from admitting that he was nothing. And it destroys him from the inside out. Keller says this, to admit you're nothing is the end of religion. It's not the beginning of religion. And so when Paul says he's nothing, it does not mean that he thinks he is with value. He knows he is made in the image of God. A religious person will almost never admit that they are nothing because the religion is what makes them something. I am doing all of these things, I'm fulfilling all of these rules, therefore look how good I am so I feel like I am something. 
They spend all of their time trying to convince themselves and other people that they are something by the works that they do and not by grace. See, in our culture today, we live in a very religious culture. I have been telling people this. Over the last five weeks, I read four to five different articles from different perspectives about how religious our culture is today. They claim to be non-religious, but we live like a very religious system. You have to obey the law of your peers. You've got to be faithful to whatever movement or whatever cause is out there. And if you don't, you're thrown out of fellowship. You're thrown out of the temple. It's, it's very non-religious in what they say, it is, but it's very, very religious. They spend so much time trying to convince themselves that they are something, but they actually feel like nothing. People inside are striving to find that thing that's going to make them feel like they are something, and we always fall short. And this is why Paul points out, when we run on our own, we are always going to end up short. We will always, in the end, feel like we are nothing. But where we are nothing, and we admit that, and we come to Christ, that's where you start to have pride. That's where you understand that you're something. And that's the second thing, that we are something. Verse 4, Paul says, But when each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So in context, Paul gets to the place of saying, we need to be in a place where we can carry one another's burdens, but it's never going to be if we are focused upon ourselves. When we realize we are nothing, we will start to live a different way. I'll explain what I mean by that. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, right? And yet he says, I'm also the most successful. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. But then he goes on in verse 16 and says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul shows, I'm a pattern of what God is doing. Paul, who says, I am the worst of sinners, is then continually saying, imitate me. Not in my sinfulness, but in my understanding of the gospel, in my understanding of grace, of God's rescue over me. And this is why it's important for us to understand the gospel, because the gospel is different than religion. I believe, as I said, everybody in the world is religious. Every single person is afraid they are nothing. It's why we put so many walls up around us. It's why we do all these things, trying to get people to think that we are something. It's why we try to act like we have all of the answers. We use our religion, whatever it is, from social causes to justice movements to gender identity to job status, even going to church to prove that we aren't anything. We try so hard to hide the fact that we feel like nothing and we fear one day we're going to be found out. Here's the beauty. You are found out. You are found out. And rather than rubbing it in your face, God redeems and God restores and God lays a righteousness upon you that he gives to you. Like my friend's daughter, we all kind of do this. She said this, I was raised in a church, but then I went to college. Not that college is bad. We recommend it for all of you. <laughs> okay. But now I am free because I am getting my own self-esteem on my own terms, which if you know her, this isn't true. She, she's very depressed. I know who I am, and I like myself for who I am. Again, it's, it's not actually true if you know her. My friends appreciate me for, who, me for who I am. Again, none of those things are actually true. What this person, and we all do, is she chucked one circle of people that she was trying to find acceptance from for another group of people she's trying to find acceptance from. And that new group of people is going to determine if they think you have value if you start to dress like them and act like them and talk like them and agree with them and all of the things that they like. And all of a sudden, you are just as enslaved as you were before. 
you're just as enslaved. What Paul says here is you don't need to compare yourself to others because religion is slavery, whether it's in a church or in the secular world. And so when Paul says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, this is the connotation that we are not basing who we are upon our neighbor. We're not basing it upon what they say, but what we have done in Christ, that he has delivered us, that he has laid his righteousness upon us, how we live for him. Paul knows he is nothing, which means without Christ, we can do nothing. To say I'm nothing means we know we cannot merit salvation on our own. It's not something that we can earn. It means that we realize in and of ourselves we are lost. And so we take it to heart and we stop trying to be our own savior because we know that we need a savior and we are not it. We are not them. There is a God and he is not you. And so that should be very helpful for a lot of us. And then we'll start to live completely differently. To be a Christian means we're finally willing to admit that we are nothing in and of our own, but we have his righteousness transferred to us, which means by trusting in Christ, the good news of his work that is given to us and laid upon us, we truly become something. We are nothing in ourselves and yet with him we are everything, which means we can see our nothingness and our greatness at the exact same time. One keeps us humble and one makes us bold as they both come together. We step out in the world and begin to live and work in God's strength, honoring Him. We boast in what God does through us, not because we're great, but because He is great. And in the end, what that means is God gets the glory for all of our lives, for everything that we do. We don't need to worry about what our neighbor thinks because we are something and nothing at the same time. God's opinion of us, God's love given to us must be the arbiter of our self-image and nothing else. We will always feel like we're nothing when we try to measure up to some religious standard instead of living and walking in the grace of God. So Paul says, I'm nothing, but I'm proud of myself. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, but I'm the most successful. He says, I am the worst sinner in the world, and yet follow me, imitate me. And there are two sides that people tend to fall on this. And you can probably determine what side you fall on. Like one side people say, I'm nothing. And they just feel terrible all the time about themselves. Look how terrible I am. I'm, I'm just nothing. And, but you can't tell people that because it makes them have this emotional, they don't have emotional strength to walk through and deal with being nothing. So they don't say that. Other people fall on the other side all the time. I'm something. Look at me. Imitate me. Look how great I am. And people say, oh, you can't say that too. That's too arrogant. This is why you've got to understand both sides of this. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians on these verses says this. It's just beautiful. He says, Though I still sin, I don't despair, because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. In that righteousness, I have no sin, no fear, no guilty conscience, no fear of death. I am indeed a sinner in this life, but I have another life, another righteousness above this life, which is in Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin or death, but is eternal righteousness and eternal life. And that's what we get laid upon us. So many today try to get their identity in nothing. Our own personal standards or the standards of some people rather than what Christ says about us. Like my friend's kid, they never really came into the fellowship of a church. They stood on the outside just probably enough to hear, hey, I'm nothing. I don't like that. I want to go away and never step fully into the gospel, into the embrace of Christ's arms. Because with the gospel self-image, the church should be the most non-judgmental place ever because we would never be comparing ourselves to one another anymore. We would compare ourselves to him and understand that we are nothing compared to Christ, but in him, we are chosen, we are loved, we are adopted, and we become everything. 
That is the beauty of the gospel. And that what I think Paul is saying here in the midst of these words is the only way that we are going to bear each other's burdens is when we come to that place. When we understand God's great love given to us because it will move us to a place of humbleness a place where we will step into each other's lives and stop judging one another for the places where they have failed, where they've fallen and not reached up to your standard that you have. And it can move us to a place that we can humbly begin to love and serve each other because the gospel becomes central to who we are. This is, this is what the gospel results in in our lives. This is why we talk about it every week at Element because when we understand it, it changes how we live. It changes our own self-image of ourselves. It changes our image of everybody else around us. It teaches us to be a people who will step into one another's lives with the same grace that God has first extended to us. And this is why every week we come to communion, because it's a reminder. Jesus, Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of what's, what I have done, because I am the one who has saved you. And so you come and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because this is how we are saved. That he has laid his righteousness upon us. He has taken our sin, given us his righteousness, taken our death, and given us his life. The great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He exchanges who he is for who we are. And that is why we have this beauty of righteousness laid upon us. That's how we're something. And that's the only way that we are something. So I invite you to come to communion this week. If you need prayer, right across the way in the lounge, you can go during music, you can go after service. But if you need prayer, maybe you have been striving so hard to be something, to prove yourself to God, and you are so weary in the midst of that. Well, we would love to be able to pray with you about that, to help you understand what the gospel truly is. If you're going through anything in your life right now, we'd love to bring to pray with you through those things as well. There's offering boxes next to the side doors. Uh, you can give online, but we do not pass a plate at Element because we believe that giving is meant to be a response to what God has done. And so it's something you actually have to do. You have to get up and give. You have to go online and do it if you want. But we do it because it's a response. And we think the more that we understand God's great generosity and giving us grace and righteousness, the more generous that we become as a people. And I encourage you to grab those sermon notes, take those questions in there as you meet with people uh, this week. Maybe some people in this room go to lunch today and talk through some of those questions. Being everything and nothing at the same time. What is our hypocrisy? What are the places that we want to try and hold people to, you know, a standard that God has never laid upon them, but we just think it needs to be on them? And what are the places we're trying to find our identity and worth? Maybe in social causes and different things around us, rather than in what Christ has said about us. Let us learn to be a people who trust Him and what the gospel speaks over us in everything. We are everything and nothing at the same time. And again, that brings a boldness and a humility. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that as we, we look through things like this in the book of Galatians, that you would remind us what it means to walk and live in humbleness. That there would be a great grace that we understand that we get to live and walk in. that we can look at all the pieces of our lives and see all the places that we've tried to measure up to something and all the places we've failed. And that wouldn't destroy a self-image. It would remind us that our self-image is found in you. And that would move us to a place of really this sweet humbleness 
that would then translate into a very sweet type of boldness as well. Because our hope of who we are is not based in ourselves. It's not based in some arbitrary standard that someone around us has come up with. Our righteousness is found in you and you alone. And that we would trust you for that. Because that rightness brings us into relationship with you. So teach us to live and walk in that relationship in ways that reflect your glory and your majesty and your, and your goodness. That we wouldn't have to spiritually inflate ourselves to make us seem like we are more than we are. Because we could not be more than we are when we have your righteousness laid upon us. And I ask that we would begin to take that to heart. And that our lives and how we interact with others would change in ways that would glorify you and that would live in bold ways that show what a redeemed life can truly begin to look like as it is lived out in the midst of a world that is so broken right now. But we live out the great grace that we received. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So to drop the curtains, just take a couple moments, maybe during this song, and ask God maybe the standards that you have placed in your own life. Not, not that it's bad, not that we shouldn't have standards, but what things have you set up in your life and maybe not attained to? And when you don't attain to that, you feel worse about yourself, thinking that God looks at you in a way that's like shocked. Oh, I can't believe you didn't. God knows. He knows. I think really the question is, where are you trying to find your righteousness? Where are you trying to find your wholeness? Are you trying to be something in and of yourself? Or are you trusting Christ for his righteousness? Because when we're trusting ourselves, we will always fall short. We will always feel like we never measure up. But when we trust his righteousness laid upon us and given to us, that's when we live in boldness and freedom. There is a humbleness and there is a strength that comes from knowing we are everything and nothing. And the everything comes from Christ. And so ask God to show you the places where you are trying to attain without him. Then have him remind you of who you are in him and walk in the great grace that you've received.